So most of you know me. Uh, I think I introduced myself to the only people that maybe didn't. I'm Dick Russell, member here, elder in training, which we'll see after today. But <laughs> this is an interesting time for us here at this church, uh, with with Dave being our pastor, being on sabbatical for three months. You all know this. But it's an interesting time for us for a lot of reasons because, for one, we get to hear from a bunch of different people speaking up here. And I figure, you know, from my perspective, I can't really lose, nor can any of these other guys, because if we do a great job, you guys can walk away going, boy, that was really good, that was edifying, it was wonderful. And if we do a terrible job, it's like, boy, I can't wait for Dave to be back. <laughs> right? So this is all a blessing. We're working through the book of Titus. And we've just completed the first chapter. I'll read from that book, beginning in verse 10 of the first chapter. So verse 10, chapter 1 of the book of Titus. Further, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the, the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And now our passage for today. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. This is the word of the Lord. So this message is going to be divided into five parts. Um, a little differently than usual, I, I kept the last four letters, T-I-O-N. That's the connection this time instead of the first one being all P's or whatever. So these are, uh, in case you miss it, or I forget to point it out, these are the points. First point is repetition. Repetition. You see what I did there? <laughs> the second is transition. The third is demonstration. The fourth, perpetuation. And the fifth and final is continuation. Repetition, transition, demonstration, perpetuation, and continuation. So our first point, repetition. What you might notice as you get to hear a bunch of different people teach through this book, and it's a short book, is that there are certain words and, and themes that are repeated and restated. This causes no little consternation among the people that are going to be speaking, by the way. Because we get to hear all the preceding speakers and hear what they have to say as we're working on our message. Like a couple of weeks ago when Logan was, Logan was preaching, uh, he, he unpacked a theme that I was working on in, for this message. And, you know, my first inclination was to jump up and yell, Dibs! But I, I fought that. And then came to realize that, that you know, these themes recur, these words recur, 
because we need to hear them again. Because we're a little thick-headed sometimes. So to hear something from one person said in, a way, in one way, and another person says it in a slightly different way, it's going to affect people differently. It's, you're going to hear it differently. And if you don't, if you do happen to just hear it again, repeat it, it's because we need to be reminded. It's because we need to hear these things, these important themes in Scripture. Figure if the Holy Spirit repeated these words and themes, caused Paul to write them over and over, it's certainly okay for us to repeat them over and over. If you're familiar with the Bible um, much, all of this repetition comes as no surprise. In biblical theology, which is uh, it's the meta-narrative, the big picture of Scripture, Ed Tresker talked about it a few weeks back, actually. Biblical theology is, is that Scripture unfolds in four major themes. Creation, think in the beginning, God created it all. Fall, the fall, Adam, original sin, all of us being born under sin, the fall. Redemption, Christ's work on the cross, his, God's mercy shown through that. And then, and then restoration, finally. And that's the new heavens and the new earth. So if you look at the whole book, you see that. You see creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You see that played out. But the beauty of it is, and the fun thing about it, I think it's fun, is that these things work out in, in small narratives uh, with n individual nations, individual people. You think about Job, you think about Joseph, you look at his life, and you can see those themes, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You can see those things played out in different people's lives. Think about Abraham, you can, and you can go through that. Ruth, Esther, you can see these themes repeated. Now here's the fun thing. You get a fuller understanding, I think. A stronger trust that God's plan will not fail. That's not by accident that the Bible is, seems to be put together that way. His plan will not fail. And now here's another thing, if you need more. That plan is being worked out in your life, God has been pleased to use your life, your story. He incorporates it into the big plan, his big story, even our little lives. God's at work in your very specific, very unique life, incorporating that story into his plan. That really should fill us with awe. That should fill us with awe. If you start feeling inconsequential and little and unimportant, just remember that. Just remember that. So even though the themes of Scripture recur over and over, note how the different authors have their own voice. They say things in their own way. So it is with people throughout history that have preached or taught or written about the same passages, right? So it is with us that are preaching through this book. We're all listening with our own ears, our own set of reference points, our own presuppositions. We all hear the same message sometimes differently. Uh, you ask any pastor, and when they're standing at the exit and people are saying, good message, I really, this is what really resonated with me. They'll hear so many different things. Sometimes things that they really didn't think they'd preached. But the Holy Spirit will work that way. Right? So it's not necessarily wrong. It's just, it's just unique. Then sometimes, you know, we, we're not always as attentive as we want to be throughout a whole message. Now, that's why a lot of churches have gone to 12-minute sermons, right? They say that's the, 
That's the attention span of, of people. And uh, that's offensive to me. So, but we still crank it up there. So, but also, you know, I'm, a, I'm sometimes I'm attentive and sometimes I'm more distracted and maybe more groggy. So, uh, I know that I, I guess I have this voice that's, that is soothing. So, you know, if I look and, and, uh, See you nodding off. I'll, I'll not be offended, really. And I may nod off myself, so. So while I'm at it here, Matt, Matt Gibson mentioned when he opened up this series uh, how encouraging it is to have such a diverse mix of men bring solid, edifying messages in Pastor Dave's absence. Some of these guys are doing this for the first time. And I really commend them for tackling it because it's, it's not an easy thing to do. I'm really excited about the future of this church, future of God's church, uh, knowing that men are still coming up and still have that desire to bring good godly messages, bring God's word. You're also going to hear from a bunch of people that are... Uh, longer in tooth. You know, they're a little older and more seasoned, but some still relative newbies at doing this. So God's really good at building his church, and I think Matt did a great job of, of uh, canvassing a bunch of people to get this 12 messages put through. So let's see. On to the second point, transition. So in our, in our verse today, in our passage, but as for you, though that's the next the next right in right in verse 1 that very first word we see Paul charging Titus with something different than what those false teachers he had just written about were teaching and I, w- I want to say that Matt Bedzik did a phenomenal job last week with that passage that was good if you haven't heard it if you weren't here didn't hear it go online and listen to it it was really good So Titus is to teach what accords with sound doctrine rather than the Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. That is the legalism that they were teaching. That's good and important advice. I mean, Jesus tells us to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul elsewhere warns us of the dogs and wolves that seek to lead the flock astray naming at least a half dozen by name in First and Second Timothy. Case in point, Paul says this to Timothy in his second letter to him. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's quite a charge, right? to Timothy from Paul and it was done in the first century and here we are in the 21st century wow things have not changed apparently there's still a lot of itching ears out there so he's telling Titus preach sound doctrine teach sound doctrine there's so many unsound unhealthy doctrines out there hard to keep track of. We probably all listen to a lot of sermons, read articles or blogs or books that emphasize what we're not to believe, what the wrong thinking is. We've been told that this or that doctrine or teacher has strayed away from the capital T truth. We've heard names of men and women, names of doctrines called out in order that we avoid them. It's important to know these things. 
but I'm reminded of how the expert in currency spots a counterfeit. That person gets to know the real thing. That person studies and studies. They know the, all the letters. They know exactly the colors. They know the fiber. They know the smell. They know everything about that bill, that $20 bill. So that when they see the false, the counterfeit, it just jumps right out at them. I like to, I like to look for four-leaf clovers. Um, if I'm outside waiting, well, outside is actually the best place to do it. <laughs> it's much harder. Anyway, so when I'm looking for four-leaf clovers, um, I'm actually looking at all the three-leaf clovers, just scanning the three-leaf clovers because when there's a four-leaf, it just jumps right out. It's like, boom. I mean, I'll be mowing the lawn, literally, and stop and get off the tractor and pluck a four-leaf clover because just so used to looking at three-leaf clovers. What a waste of time. So, but, but this is what Paul's telling Titus to do, though, right? He's saying, show them the real thing. Emphasize Jesus Christ. Make sure they know just exactly what he looks like, what the gospel is, so that when they hear false teaching, because you know no, no pastor, no buddy can hit all of the fakes out there. Make sure they know. They know the real thing. I'm reminded of a, of a man... Uh, that preached for 54 years in the same church back in the late 1700s and 1800s. I wasn't there, but, but uh, John Piper wrote this book, uh, The Roots of Endurance, and his name is Charles Simeon. It's a fascinating story if any of you have heard of him. Uh, if you haven't, uh, look him up. It really is a fascinating story because he was preaching in a place actually where they didn't love him. For the first 12 years of his ministry, they actually they locked the door on him. They wouldn't let him preach the afternoon service. He could, he, he could do the morning service, but they had someone come in for the, Anyway, uh, so 54 years he stayed in that place. It wasn't just, a, obviously, a little uh, country church like ours where everybody's easy to get along with. Simeon was, was chided sometimes because he didn't, preach against false doctrine or um, false teachers or bad doctrine from the pulpit. So he received this letter from another pastor who wanted him to call out somebody from the pulpit who was accused of teaching doctrinal error. Simeon's uh, Simeon's pithy response to the one that wrote him was this. I know you'll forgive me if I say that the very account you give of yourself in relation to controversy is a dissuasion from embarking in it. Let a man once engage in it, and it is surprising how the love of it will grow on him. And he will find both a hair in every bush and will follow it with something of a huntsman's feelings. You see what he's saying there. There's a, there's a resident danger to dwelling on the negatives. One can start listening to any teaching they hear, anything they read, even the conversations they have with their blasphemy radar on high alert. Instead of meditating on what's pure and lovely and profitable, they're almost exclusively tuned into the beep of their blasphemy detector. If you haven't been there yourself, it's likely that you've been around people like that. And let's be honest, it's really not appealing. Now discernment is an essential skill. But nitpicking minor points is not. When you see them, you might these people, you might try to avoid eye contact and get the urge to look for the exits. If you're not quick enough, you're caught in their vortex. 
Now I'm sounding a bit uncharitable here, and I, I should say that, that these people, for the most, they love God, and they have a lot of other wonderful gifts that they're willing to share, but they just have things out of balance. Here's the odd thing that happens, though. When we do get around this kind of person, we might just get caught in doing the same thing. We're plucking the minor chords. We join right in them with them. It appeals to our baser instincts. The feeling's not unlike what we experience when we hear a juicy bit of gossip. There's something that stirs up and something's provoked deep inside of us that, that it, it, it's gross, but we do it. And we have to be careful because we become like the Pharisee that says, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. No, our self-righteousness and pride is not something we need to foster. I've spent time personally, too much time, listening to teaching, watching videos, reading articles that pointed out every minor theological disagreement. Does it in great detail, but it doesn't give God's truth the emphasis and the gospel the emphasis that, that it really deserves. Feeble attempts are made to to sanctify it by throwing in a scripture verse here or there. But unfortunately it can sometimes be like lipstick on the, on the proverbial pig. It took me too long to recognize that this is not something I need to feed, but something that I need to starve. My, probably many of our natural inclinations is to point the finger at all those others and become prideful that I'm not like them. And in the process, what can unwittingly happen is that we draw bold lines where God has not. It's the legalism that Matt Bedzik talked about last week. No, we don't need to feed that. It needs to be starved. Titus and your pastors are to teach sound doctrine. In Romans, Paul exhorts us with this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In Hebrews 12, we're told to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This world can be a brutal place. So let's not make enemies unnecessarily. Uh, John Newton's friend and companion hymn writer William Cooper wrote a poem titled The Nightingale and the Glowworm that speaks to this. I think, you know, Matt Gibson mentioned that I liked poetry and a few weeks ago in Sunday school, and I guess I'm proving him right now. So, A nightingale that all day long had cheered the village with his song, nor yet at eve his note suspended, nor yet when eventide was ended, began to feel as well he might the keen demands of appetite. When looking eagerly around, he spied far off upon the ground a something shining in the dark and knew the glowworm by his spark. So stooping down from hawthorn top, he thought to put him in his crop. The worm, aware of his intent, harangued him, thus right eloquent. Did you admire my lamp, quoth he, as much as I your minstrelsy? You would abhor to do me wrong as much as I to spoil your song, for t'was the same self-power divine taught you to sing and me to shine, that you with music, I with light, might beautify and cheer the night. The songster heard this, his short oration, and warbling out his approbation, released him, as my story tells, and found a supper somewhere else. Hence jarring sectaries may learn their real interest to discern, 
that brother should not war with brother and worry and devour each other, but sing and shine by sweet consent till life's poor transient night is spent, respecting in each other's case the gifts of nature and of grace. Those Christians best deserve the name who studiously make peace their aim, peace, both the duty and the prize of him that creeps and him that flies. Now, I'm in no way saying that we should avoid learning about the dangerous false doctrines that are so prevalent. By no means. What I'm saying is that I think Paul, and I think Paul's saying to Titus is, keep the flock's eyes trained on the prize, on Jesus Christ, and keep those not Christ things in the margins. Reinforcement and reiteration of the truth keeps the heart and mind trained on it, better able to identify the fakes. To meditate on the lovely and pure, we need to know the lovely and pure. Logan pointed out a couple weeks ago, and Matt also did last week, that the word we see as sound also means healthy, which I find very helpful. Feeding on healthy, robust doctrine creates a healthy, vibrant body that loves God and loves others. Don't take for granted that you're part of a church where you get that kind of nourishment week in and week out. On to point three, demonstration. When it was decided that we would use this summer to go through this book, Matt, I told you already, sent out this email to a number of men to pick their topics to preach. I was on vacation when that first came out, and it was quick. People jumped on these things quick. It was quite amazing, really, to have 12 messages filled up in such a short time. My friend Jason was kind enough to text me to say, Hey, Dick, the, they're getting filled up. If you want a slot, you better jump in. And when I did, this was the message that was left, titled... Thank you, Matt. Titled, The Older Community of Grace. Right? So, Providence, set up. I don't, I don't know. But here we are. I found it kind of funny. You know, age is a funny thing, really. Because when you're young, you really look forward to those those birthdays, those milestone birthdays, when you're going to become a teenager and you just can't wait. Any birthday when you're young, you're looking forward to it. But then, I want to be a teenager. I can't wait to be a teenager. Oh, I can't wait to turn 16. I'm going to get my license. And you're so looking forward to this. And it seems like forever that the days and the weeks and the months tick off until that time comes. Your summer vacation seems to last forever. Now, at my age, I feel like I'm eating breakfast every two hours. You know, we try to convince ourselves when we're older that we're really not, it's just a number, really. It's just a number. It's not, you know, 61. It's just a number. And then you go and try to play volleyball with a bunch of young people, and you have to have your wife boost you up into the truck when you're done. So reality just blindsides us. Older men to be are to be sober-minded, uh, well dignified, self-controlled, sound. In other words, healthy in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. You've seen a lot of these words before in this book. Uh, many of them are also found either exactly or by definition in the qualifications of an elder. This makes sense uh, because every member of the priesthood of believers is called to pursue holiness and obedience to Christ. But this is a specifically pointed toward older men. But as you read on in our passage, the next few words after this is, Older women likewise. 
So it isn't a stretch to say that these qualities are also to be present in them. I'll speak more, more specifically to women later, but now realize that they're also included in this exhortation. Looking at the attributes in the passage, the older men of Titus's flock on Crete are to be sober-minded. That is, not led away or intoxicated by anything that would impair their judgment. Not just alcohol or drugs, but other worldly influences that run counter to God's word. They should have clear, unclouded judgment. Dignified or worthy of respect, they should be seen as sincere and serious, but that doesn't mean stoic and rigid. Their interactions need to be honest and forthright and well thought out. They're to be self-controlled. They're to be disciplined in thought and deed. Staying in their lane and not in the gutter. They're steady. They respond appropriately to the happenings of life, not over or under reacting. Every disagreement or perceived slight does not need to be met with outrage. They need to have an even keel. Sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Steady, consistent, faithful, loving, genuine. They demonstrate their love for God and for others by both their words and their actions. These are people that we seek out, knowing that what we hear from them will be what we need to hear, not necessarily what we want to hear. You get honest interaction and you know where you stand with people like this. Most often they're people that have been around for a while. They've had a few trips around the sun. They've had more experience in life than we have. And they've likely gone through whatever situation we're currently enmeshed in or they have some reference points to it. We get to hear another perspective and check our own thinking, either confirming it or offering another way. All these attributes are given and grown by God's grace under the heat of the refining fire of life. Peter writes in his second letter, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice how so many of those words that Peter just spoke about are the same words that Paul told Titus to, you know, that older men should be this. Same things that he said elders should be this. So the way this growth happens, all of the, uh, the way this growth, growth happens is, reminds me of something called uh, dendrochronology. Anybody know what that is? You do. You just don't know the word. It's, uh, it's the study of, of tree growth rings as it applies to like climate and, and uh, specific events in time. So you all know about tree growth rings. So most of the time a dark ring represents cold weather, a light ring warm weather. And the two of them together is a year in the in the life of the tree. The width of the ring is contingent on the growing conditions. The drier, the tougher the climate, the tighter the ring. The, the wetter, the easier growing, the wider the ring. So if, if you're a woodworker or a carpenter, you like to see those narrow rings 
that signifies strong wood. Now you might be asking by now, well that's thanks for the science lesson, but what does this have to do with anything? Well you know we long for an easy, trouble-free life. We do, right? Ease and comfort is like, that's our gravitational pull, is toward that. We want life to glide along with every piece fitting perfectly in our puzzle. But when Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, it wasn't, it wasn't just potential. In this world you will have tribulation. We all, everybody sitting here, I can look out and I can think of some tribulation that some of you specifically have had, those of the, you that I know, and you, me. Tribulation comes. It wasn't just a potentiality. So there's a there's a band I really like called the Wood Brothers. Um, and they have a song called Happiness Jones. And I'm pretty sure that this is the first time in a sermon anywhere they have been referenced. But they have a song called Happiness Jones. And it says, there's a verse that says, All of my wisdom came from all the toughest days. I never learned a thing being happy. All of my suffering came. I didn't appreciate it. I never learned a thing being happy. That's an overstatement, of course. We'd certainly learn things from being happy, but all, the, all of his wisdom came from the adversity, from the toughest days. And as time goes by in our Christian lives, we can look back and identify times that were productive. They were productive growth. They didn't seem at the time. But it's that adversity that you go through that makes your timber strong. You might be going through a hard time right now. You're wondering why. And you're even thinking that God's turned his back on you. But take heart, Christian. God's not abandoned you if, if you're God's child. Even in those times of spiritual drought, a strong and tight growth ring is being grown in you. By the grace of a merciful God, one who is perpetually loving. These are the times when you learn perseverance, among other things. And on the other side of them, you come out realizing that you never really were left alone. That God is always true to his word, his promise that he will never leave you or forsake you. I, I think about that, the, the song that we sing, uh, Christ the sure and steady anchor, and that line that says, the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. So while years don't necessarily coincide with God-produced growth rings, there are certainly some younger souls that have had more than their share of severe trials. But in general, uh, the older among us have more of those tight growth rings. We've been gone through a lot. And here's one thing, and I don't want to sound morbid here, but one thing is generally true is the older one gets, the more familiar they are with death. When you're young, when you're young, the death of a loved one, the death of a loved one is rare occurrence for the most part. But as you get older, you've buried your parents and maybe siblings and friends and loved ones and it picks up steam as you go and there's just something about, about death and about a funeral that makes one take stock of themselves spiritually. You think about where am I at? Because life is truly a vapor. It goes by so quick. You get to be the age of some of our senior saints here and myself, and you start looking back and you wonder where it all went. And you start realizing in these times of death and times of funerals that you need to tell people what you feel about them. You need to be... You need to be proactive because they don't hear it in the casket, right? 
let them know how important they are to you. It's what we learn. And it gives you a, a, a little more tenderness, too, toward people in their trials. Endurance, perseverance, steadfastness. Those are traits that grow like, like no other when you start hitting these golden years. It's built both spiritual muscle and, and tenderness. Moving on now to our fourth point, perpetuation. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now you see how similar these virtues are with what I just spoke on, with some additional directives specifically to older women. They're charged with instructing the younger women how to be a God, a God and husband loving wife and mother. See, we're living in a time that was much different from when this letter was written. But these truths are timeless, right? I mean, it's God's word. So it was true then, and it's true now. There's a war being waged on every front aimed at destroying the biblical view of marriage, of sex, of gender, of raising children, of the whole concept of the family. And it's ugly, and it's scary, and it's dangerous. But your directives, older women, younger women, faithfully carried out will hold the line. When God created men and women, he supplied us innately with the particular tools required to do the parts assigned to us. That doesn't mean it's easy, but that it's possible by grace and effort. Older women, don't shy back from your instructive responsibilities to the younger women. Your, your own daughters, certainly, but also other young women just embarking on the marital journey or preparing to. Make it part of your personal ministry to seek them out. Come alongside them, guide them, correct them. Hold that line. One more thing in this passage, it says, working at home, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. I studied on that statement, and as you might guess, there's just a wide range of interpretations, uh, anywhere from well, that was a cultural thing back in the first century and it doesn't apply at all today to it absolutely applies and it's sinful to work out for a woman to work outside the home. Well, uh, here's where I landed after doing a, a lot of study because I want to rightly divide the word of truth and I pray that I am as I say this. I don't see this as a prohibition against women having an occupation outside the home. I'm not foolish or brave enough to name them, but women seem to be specially suited to perform some jobs, some functions, that they're just better than men, more equipped. The, the gifts that God's given uh, work better in some situations. Now that's not to say that we we create our theology on pragmatism, but it's just an observation. Here's the catch. It's all about priority. I think it's fine for a woman to have an occupation, to work outside the home, but the priority the number one priority must be in maintaining the home and managing the household and raising the children. There are people that can do those things together. 
both of those things. The standard is not mediocrity, though. The standard is excellence in doing this. So if the job that you have is taking too much mental or physical strength or energy away from you and that you're not able to maintain that household, that that's what's slacking, then maybe it's time to prayerfully recalibrate, to think about about where you're spending your energy and your time and, and so on. Again, not saying that people can't do it. There's been, there's a lot of families that, that have two working parents uh, or two, two working spouses, and it works fine. But remember, women, that your family is depending on you. You can be replaced in a job. You cannot be replaced in the home. So no money, no amount of money or a claim is worth sacrificing that. I also want to say, uh, and I hope you heard me say this, that, that I'm not saying it's wrong for a woman not to have an occupation outside the home. Right? Absolutely not. That's great. Now briefly, on to the final point, continuation. Our passage was addressing older men and women, but this point applies to every Christian of every age. Don't let your guard down. Don't let your guard down. See, just because we're older doesn't mean that we have a button down. Even Paul, right? Even Paul was saying, not that I've already attained... He was still running the race to win the prize. I'm just going to read what, what John Piper wrote about this. Because it's John Piper, he's, he's awesome. John Piper wrote this. He said, as I complete my 50th year as a professing Christian, I feel the urgency of endurance more now than ever. I used to think differently. I used to think when I was in my 20s and 30s that sanctification had a kind of cumulative effect and that at 50, the likelihood of apostasy would be far smaller than at 30 or 40. In one sense, that is true. Surely growth in grace and knowledge and faith helps us no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, I see more clearly now that even after years of such growth and stability, shocking coldness or even apostasies are possible. And I've known moments of horrifying blankness that made me realize my utter dependence on the mercies of God being new every morning. Perseverance is a gift. That I will wake up and be a believer tomorrow morning is not finally and decisively owing to my will, but to God. I've known too many mornings on the precipice to think otherwise. That I've been snatched back every time is sheer mercy. The human will cannot be depended on because in the crisis of faith, it is precisely the will that is weak and failing. I can't say it better than that. As Christians, you know, the, the, the finish line is out there it's death. Between now and then, there's a race to be run. Right? So, you know, I get to speak to people with at faith in action. I get to go out, and used to, get to go out and speak to groups. And I would talk to retirees a lot and encourage them to be out leaning into need. This is what, this is Piper's words, leaning into need. Uh, Piper's also got a book, Don't Waste Your Life, right? That's, and part of that book says, as, as retirees, when you're in retirement, don't just be collecting seashells. Don't be just working on your seashell collection. Don't be just hedonistic about what you're pursuing, thinking that, well, finally, 
I've worked all these years, now I can stop working and just go out and entertain myself, work on my golf game, collect seashells. That's not what we're to do. While we can retire from our vocations, there's so much to be done for Christ. That's where the energy... This, this Simeon, Charles Simeon, this guy that I talked about earlier, he got really sick when he was in his later 40s. When he turned 60, he got sick, so like really sick. He couldn't preach. He couldn't do things for a while. It was, it was hard on him. At age 60, suddenly, for no reason, on his last trip to Scotland, he became well. He was energized. Well, what he'd done, and this, he attributes this as the discipline of God, the 13 years that he spent uh, being ill. I'm not saying this is going to happen to anybody here. I'm just saying this is what Simeon said. Charles Simeon said that when he was in his mid-40s, he plotted out a plan that he was going to preach and teach until age 60 and then back away from the ministry and just take it easy. He says it was a discipline of God that caused that illness and caused him at age 60 when he was going to be stepping back from ministry. At age 60, he's invigorated and rejuvenated. He's, he says his strength was, was doubled, trebled, quadrupled at that time. And he continued until his death, uh, 16 years later, to preach and never looked back again, never, never sought retirement. So we need to seriously think about our view of retirement. You know? Let's look for what we can do, how we can put our energy without having that vocation now, putting more energy and effort into the kingdom. I look forward to that. Uh, hopefully in a few years, God willing, be able to do it. <clears throat>